Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 17, Genghis Khan. Thanks for listening in. Last time, we covered three different subjects. First off, we tidied up the whole cumin thing and whether or not they were a major factor in the decline of Kievan Rus, and I decided they were. Then we took a look at what was going on in the late 12th and early 13th century Vladimir, under the long reign of Vesevolod Bignest. And then finally we met a young lad called Temujin and looked at his early life. This week we'll be taking a look at the further adventures of Temujin, who will end up becoming the Oceanic Universal Ruler of the Mongol Empire, and who is alternatively known as both the Great Khan and Genghis Khan. And the name or title Genghis is where we get the Oceanic Universal bit from. Now Genghis and his descendants will go on to extend the boundaries of the empire in all directions, apart from the north, until it became, in the 13th and 14th centuries, the largest empire the world had ever seen, only surpassed in terms of size by one other imperial entity, the British Empire of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Ah, the British Empire. I wonder what ever happened to that. Now what this episode won't be is a definitive history of the Mongols and their empire, and that's for two reasons. One, this is the History of Russia podcast. Two, there are other podcasts out there that cover Mon the Mongol Empire in a much more extensive way. Check out the History of the Mongols or Dan Carlin's hardcore history series called The Wrath of the Khans. So why am I covering the subject? Well, simply for the reason that the Rus and the Mongols are going to meet each other in the not too distant future. And so what I want to do is provide some context and background from the Mongol side of things to the events that will surely occur, shortly occur even, in our neck of the woods. Okay. At the end of the last episode, we covered Temujin's escape from being held captive by his father's former allies, 
and then how he had gone on to become somewhat of a force to be reckoned with in his small patch of nomadic northern Mongolia, although it wasn't called Mongolia at the time. And just as a reminder, all of this happened during the late 1100s when Vesevolod III was ruling the Rus lands from his capital, Vladimir. So at the time of our story, the Central Asian plateau north of China was divided into several prominent and shifting tribal confederations, which included the Naimans, the Merkits, the Tatars, the Mongols and the Karaites, who in the main all rubbed along together, but who would also from time to time take part in random raids, plundering and revenge attacking each other. And in this dog-eat-dog -dog, male-dominated clan-based culture, there were only three marks or measures of success. Who you knew, and it certainly helped if you counted one or two of the local clan chiefs as your friends. How good at fighting you were, and how many horses and cattle you had. Nice and simple. And this type of life had gone on for centuries, and typically no one group had the upper hand for long or managed to dominate or unite all of the other tribes. And just a bit of an explanation here, I mentioned a number of different peoples just now, but as far as our story is concerned, going forward, only two of them are really important, and that is the Mongols and the Tartars. Now both of these terms are often used interchangeably, but there is an ethnic and linguistic difference. The Mongols were ethnically Mongolian and spoke Mongolian or Proto-Mongolian, whilst the Tartars were ethnically Turkic and spoke a variety of Turkic languages. Okay, back to the story. In the latter part of the 1100s, something strange happened on the Mongolian steppe that caused the equilibrium to shift because a stable system of rule was established at a layer above the basic tribal level, and all of this was effectively down to one man, Temujin. He began his ascent to power by offering himself as an ally, or according to other sources, as a vassal, to his father's sworn blood brother, Togrul, who was Khan of the Karaites and was better known by his Chinese title, Wang Khan, and that's what I'm going to be calling him from now on. Now at around this time, Temujin's wife Borta was kidnapped by some Merkits, and I, I have to keep stopping and thinking when I say Merkits, because I keep wanting to say meerkats. Hopefully I won't. So to get his wife back, he turned to two key people for support. The first was Wang Khan, who offered a number of Karaite warriors to assist in the rescue. The sources state 20,000, but this is likely to be an overestimate. And the second was his childhood friend, Jamuka, who had recently become the chief of his own tribe. This joint campaign rescued Borta and utterly defeated the Merkits, but it also saw the start of a rift between Temujin and Jamuka, and as they drifted apart, each began consolidating his own power, and in the end they became bitter rivals. Jamuka favoured the traditional path of handing the top positions to his relatives uh, of the clan chiefs, who were members of his tribe. Jobs for the boys, if you like. Temujin, on the other hand, followed a, a more meritocratic method and gave the top jobs to those that deserved them, whatever their titles or lineage. And it's this method that would eventually start to reap benefits. In 1186, 
Temujin was elected Khan of the Mongols, and feeling threatened by his former friend's rise, Jamuka decided that he'd better act sooner rather than later, and so he attacked Temujin early in the following year with an army of 30,000 troops, and again, surely this is an overestimate. Temujin gathered his followers to defend against the attack, but he was decisively beaten. Wang Khan was captured and exiled, and whilst Temujin himself managed to escape, but for the next 10 years the sources provide no indication of where he went or what he did. Then in around 1197, the Chinese Jin dynasty initiated an attack against their former vassals, the Tatars, with help from the Karaites and the Mongols, the former being commanded by Wang and the latter by Temujin. And the attack proved to be successful, and the Jin restored both Wang and Temujin to their former positions of power. So now that he's back in charge, Temujin started to consolidate and then steadily grow his power base. And when he defeated rival tribes, he didn't drive away their soldiers and abandon their civilians. Instead, he took the conquered tribe under his protection and integrated its members into his own tribe. He would even have his mother adopt orphans from the conquered tribe, bringing them into his family. These political innovations inspired great loyalty among the conquered people and made Temujin stronger with each victory. But of course, all of their success started to cause jealousy, and one of Wang's sons, Sengum, began to envy Temujin's power and his close ties with his father. And so Sengum started to chip away at this close relationship between the two old friends, and in time he managed to win Wang over to his side. And this became apparent when Wang refused to allow his daughter to marry Temujin's eldest son, Jochi. Now this site was seen as disrespectful in Mongolian culture, as it was probably intended to be, and all parties soon started to prepare for hostilities. Temujin on the one side, and the combined forces of Wang, Sengum, and Temujin's old rival Jamuka on the other. Luckily for Temujin though, Wang and Jamuka found it impossible to get along with each other as allies, and Temujin was able to decisively defeat the forces ranged against him. And never again were the Karaites strong enough to challenge the Mongols. Jamuka, however, escaped, and in 1201 he formed a coalition with a number of tribes to get rid of Temujin once and for all. But it was too late, and Temujin had grown too strong. The coalition forces were defeated, and Jamuka was captured. Now, according to the secret history of the Mongols, Temujin again offered his friendship, but this was refused with Jamuka saying that there could only be one sun in the sky, and he asked for a noble death. Now amongst the Mongols, a noble death meant that no blood could be spilt, and usually meant having your back broken under pressure, which I'm not so sure I would have asked for, but Jamuka did, and he got exactly what he'd requested. And so by 1206, Temujin had managed to unite or subdue all of the different tribal groupings, and at a Kurultai, a council of Mongol chiefs, he was acknowledged as Khan of the Consolidated Tribes and took the new title, Genghis Khan. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now, typically at this stage, most successful nomadic chieftains would settle down and start to enjoy their newfound wealth and status. But Genghis was no ordinary man, and he started to focus his efforts into two main areas. Firstly, he recognised that what he had won in battle would need to be properly administered, otherwise it would start to fracture, and so he established a civilian and military code called the Yasa. Now the Yasa was based on the ideals that he had promoted early on in his career, and which had proved to be so successful. The system was tolerant of different races, religions and ethnicities, and as the empire grew, it became one of the most ethnically and culturally diverse empires in history. There were tax exemptions for religious figures, and to some extent teachers and doctors. The Mongol Empire practiced religious tolerance because Mongol tradition had long held that religion was a personal concept and not subject to law or state interference. And as the empire later grew even larger, Genghis realised that he needed people who could govern the cities and states that he had conquered, and he also realised that such administrators could not be found among his Mongol people, because they were nomads and they didn't have the necessary experience. And so he invited in a Khitan prince called Chutsai, who had served the Jin dynasty to act as a kind of prime minister and administer the majority of the empire. And the second area that Genghis wanted to concentrate on was further acquisition of land, as he realised that to hold on to what he had got, attack was the best form of defence. And so over the next 20 years, his army successfully set about conquering the various peoples who lived to the southwest and east of the Mongolian heartland. And these included, in order, the Western Shia, the Jin dynasty in China, the Kara Kitai, and the Persian-based Khwarazmian Empire. And these further conquests were successful for three main reasons. One, the Mongols were brilliant, tough, all-round and all-weather fighters. Two, they were absolutely ruthless. And three, Genghis was a brilliant military strategist and, importantly, a highly effective delegator. So let's take a brief look at one of those campaigns and I think you'll get the picture. In 1218, Genghis saw the potential advantage in trading with the Khwarazmian Empire via the Silk Road. And initially, he sent a 500-man trading caravan to establish official ties with the Khwarazmian Empire. However, and talk about big mistakes, a local governor attacked the caravan, some say on Shah Allah ad-Din Muhammad II's orders, and had the traders arrested and murdered. 
Although another source says that the caravan was just attacked and set on fire and doesn't even mention murder. But who knows? And so Genghis, no doubt seething, but determined not to lose his call, then sent a group of three ambassadors, two Mongols and a Muslim, to meet the Shah of Khwarazmia himself. But the Shah proved to be even more stupid and reckless than his governor, because he had two of the men's heads shaved, the Mongols, and sent them back with the head of the third, the Muslim. Outraged now, and you'll see what I mean, Genghis planned one of the largest invasion campaigns by organising together around 100,000 soldiers, and I'm not sure this is an overestimate. And then this army, together with his generals and his sons, crossed the Tian Shan Mountains and using three separate divisions, launched a massive three-pronged pincer attack on the Shah's territory. And the Shah played right into their hands by dividing his army into small groups and concentrating them in various different cities. The Mongol army quickly seized the town of Otra, relying on superior strategy and tactics, and Genghis Khan ordered the wholesale massacre of many of the civilians, enslaved the rest of the population, and executed the governor, yes, the same governor who had initially attacked the trade caravan, by pouring molten silver into his ears and eyes as retribution for his earlier actions. So no noble death for him. Well, I suppose in a way it was. Genghis next advanced on the city of Bukhara, which was not heavily fortified, with just a moat, a single wall, and a citadel typical of Khwarazmian cities. The city leaders opened the gates to the Mongols, although a unit of Turkish defenders held the city's citadel for another 12 days. The survivors from the citadel, when it was captured, were executed. Artisans and craftsmen from the city were sent back to Mongolia and young men who had not fought were drafted into the Mongolian army and the rest of the population was sent into slavery. So with the capture of Bukhara, the way was clear for the Mongols to advance on the empire's capital of Samarkand, which possessed significantly better fortifications and a larger garrison. To overcome the city, the Mongols engaged in intensive psychological warfare, including the use of captured Khwarazmian prisoners as body shields. And after several days, only a few remaining soldiers, loyal supporters of the Shah, held out in the citadel. After the fortress fell, Genghis again executed every soldier that had taken arms against him. According to the Persian historian Atamalek Yuvaini, the people of Samarkand were then ordered to evacuate and assemble in a plain outside the city, where they were killed and pyramids of severed heads were raised as a symbol of victory. With the capture of Samarkand and the subsequent capture of the capital Ugrench, the empire effectively collapsed. The Shah managed to escape but died a few weeks later of pleurisy on a godforsaken island in the Caspian Sea. And for Genghis, it was time to go home. But two of his generals, Subutai and Jebe, suggested splitting the army, with Genghis leading the main, main force on a raid through Afghanistan and northern India back to Mongolia, while the generals headed north into the Caucasus Mountains with 20,000 men. And their plan was audacious. They aimed to cross the mountains in winter, circle the Caspian Sea 
and take all of the region for the Mongol Empire and destroy all of the tribes that lived there. They pushed deep into Armenia and Azerbaijan, defeated the Kingdom of Georgia, sacked the Genoese trade fortress of Kaffa in the Crimea and then cut across the Caucasus Mountains to get around the heavily guarded Durban Pass. However, the Mongols were tricked by their guides into taking a perilous route and they emerged from the mountains, cold, hungry and exhausted, only to see in front of them a massive steppe coalition army. Now I'm really sorry, but that's where we're going to leave the two generals until the next episode. Having made it back home, Genghis's thoughts turned to the succession, and here he had a problem. He was aware of the friction between his sons, particularly between Chagatai and Jochi, the two eldest boys, and worried of possible com conflict between them if he died. He therefore decided to divide his empire among all of his sons and make all of them a Khan in their own right, whilst appointing one of his sons as a kind of head Khan, if you like. Now, Chagatai was considered unstable due to his temper and rash behaviour, and, and he'd made statements that he wouldn't follow Jochi if he was to become the head guy. If Jochi were to become successor, again, it was likely that Chagatai would engage in warfare with him and potentially ruin all of Genghis's achievements. Tolui, the youngest son, was not suitable, since in Mongol culture, youngest sons were not really given much responsibility due to their age. Therefore, Genghis decided to give the throne to son number three, Ogade. Ogade was seen by Genghis Khan as dependable in character, stable and down to earth, and Genghis knew he'd be a neutral candidate that might be able to defuse the situation between his two elder brothers. So that was all settled then. Well, not quite. First Jochi died, and then Genghis himself died in 1227, with Ogadai still campaigning away out to the west, and it took another couple of years until his succession was rubber-stamped. In between times, the youngest son, Tolui, acted as a kind of regent for his elder brother. And so, the great Genghis Khan was dead. But was he a great man, or just another one of history's ruthless megalomaniacs? Well, his achievements, methods and reputation have been debated over the centuries, and you broadly have two main schools of thought. One makes the Mongols under Genghis and his successors culpable for every military atrocity that has ever occurred, whilst the opposing one has them as harbingers of world peace and security, beset by a few regrettable excesses. Now, every century has had its atrocities, and whilst I'm no admirer of all-powerful, all-conquering alpha male types, I think that you have to admire the Mongol invasions on the strategic military level. But would I have liked to have been in Genghis's company? Probably not. OK, we'll end it there this week. Next time, we'll take a look at what Ogadai does with his inheritance, and I'll get to tell you one of my favourite historical anecdotes. And we'll also look at what's going on in the lands of the Rus. But most importantly, we'll catch up with Subutai and Jebe and watch how they are destroyed by the massive army that confronts them. Or will we? If you're enjoying the podcast, then leave me a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or follow me wherever you listen. And if you want to get in touch with a comment or question, 
then you can via the website historyofrussia.podbean.com uh, on Twitter uh, it's at historyrussia1 and email is nordicworld at outlook.com okay then until next time stay safe look after yourselves and I'll see you all soon sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.